Good morning, church. My name is Jordan Bertrand. My husband and I, uh, his name is Matt. He's back there. We, we serve here at Redeemer Odessa. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be in Mark 14, um, 26 through 42. So if y'all want to turn um, there in the ESV Bible, it's on page 851, or it should be up on the screen as well. Mark 14, 26 through 42. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Thank you, Jordan. Hey, good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church Odessa. Uh, if you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us. There's a connect card under, under your chair. If you'd take a minute, fill that out. Uh, let us know how we can connect with you. Let us know how we can serve you. Let us know how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Somebody could bring you one. And if you're on your phone or tablet or whatever, we use the ESV. All right, so this is a safe space, so I'm just going to be honest. One of my defects, of which there are many, uh, sometimes I really struggle with tact. Like, I'd tell you, I would tell you that I'm really good at, at saying hard things to you in a very matter-of-fact sort of way, but sometimes if you're on the receiving end of that, it doesn't always feel like a good thing, right? Um, when used correctly, I think it's a real gift, uh, but I don't... I don't know. It's the, I have a hard time sometimes holding it in balance. Uh, I don't always, I don't typically feel this overwhelming desire to be like a, a people-pleasing person, so I'm kind of thankful for that. I think honesty is the best way, and honesty is helpful when applied in a gentle and loving sort of way. However, 
Sometimes I've noticed that when I'm not in a good place emotionally, I'll say things that are unnecessarily harsh, or I can get super defensive if I'm confronted about some stuff. Uh, and sometimes emotional or not, I just make a really bold or outlandish statement that is sometimes very unnecessary. Uh, for example, in 2007, I came here. I was in college. I moved to Odessa for the summer. And I was working at this church as a summer intern. And I'm going to just be real honest, it was not the best summer of my life. Um, so as I'm driving out on the North Loop, headed to the Andrews Highway to go back to Lubbock, I'm shaking the metaphorical dust off my sandals before Odessa and talking about how much I hated Odessa and how I would never, ever move back to Odessa. And if anybody ever brought up Odessa to me when I was living in DFW, I'd be like, blah, the worst. So in 2012, as I had made the statement that I'm never, ever moving back to Odessa, I'm loading up this moving truck to, you guessed it, move back to Odessa uh, and, and I said when I got here, okay, I'm going to do my three years, and I think I called it a sentence. I'm going to do my three-year sentence, and I'm going to get out. Uh, and then 2021, we planted a church here in the Fun Dome with no intentions of ever leaving because God is good. And I actually love Odessa. Hear me. I love Odessa, and I don't know why anyone would ever leave Odessa ever. So, <laughs> anyways... The point of all that uh, is that the Lord has grown me. Uh, I'm not as prone to this type of stupidity anymore. I still do it, but it's just not as like out there and available for you all to see all the time. Um, when you look at the 12 disciples of Jesus, there's this guy, his name's Peter. He just seems to always be so unashamedly bold and uh, brash, and it usually ends and humility and humiliation for him. Uh, today, we're going to see a continuation of, of Jesus' prediction that he made last week that one of the 12 disciples would betray him. And we're going to get another prediction stacked on top of that about more betrayal. And then we're going to see Jesus praying to God in a really intimate sort of way. All the while, Jesus is experiencing suffering in our text. So I really, I really want us to consider, we talked about this last week, I want to talk about it some more today. I really want to consider the suffering of Jesus and its purpose for us today. It's very easy, especially if you're like churchy people, been in church your whole life, or maybe even if you're new to this whole thing, but you've been in this churchy culture your whole life. Like It's very easy for us to hear about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and then to like regurgitate a bunch of stuff we've heard, and for some of us, regurgitate a bunch of stuff we've heard our whole lives. Like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and actually have that truth have no impact on our lives. It's easy to sit in this culture, to sit in churches, and to regurgitate a bunch of facts about Jesus. It's easy to accept cultural pictures uh, of a suffering Savior, in our culture, both Catholics and Christians paint this picture, a physical picture, of this white guy uh, with flowing locks that kind of looks like Fabio, and they call him Jesus. And he looks rather stoic and emotionless as he hangs on a cross. 
We see a little blood trickling down from the crown of thorns. We have them hanging on our walls in our churches or, or wherever else. And none of this is accurate. We have these physical representations and we have these um, just pseudo-spiritual representations of Jesus that, that just aren't accurate. Um, first of all, Jesus isn't some white-skinned European-looking dude. Like, he's from the Middle East, so he was a brown-skinned guy. Uh, and I'll end that digression right there. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus wasn't casually led to the cross and a crown of thorns gently placed on his head and barely piercing the skin of his forehead. No, Jesus was brutally beaten and then nailed to a cross, naked and exposed, bloodied and broken and executed in a methodically slow and painful way. And as a church, as we're approaching the end of the book of Mark together, I just want to call you to consider that. I want to call you to consider the suffering of Jesus. And I want to call you to consider what is taking place in this garden this morning as Jesus is praying and as Jesus is suffering. And then I want to show you, as I showed you last week, like how we're all like Judas, the disciple that betrayed Jesus. I want to show you how we're all like Judas. And I want to show you how we're all like the other 11 disciples. And may this knowledge of the suffering of Jesus and may this realization that we're all the disciples in this text lead you to the worship and exaltation of Jesus by faith and repentance from your sins this morning. Faith in Christ, repentance of your sins. May it lead you to that. So let's pray, and we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we are thankful people. Lord, thank you for the cross and the resurrection that through it we have life and can have life eternal in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would show us our deep need for you, both Christian and non-Christian, believer and unbeliever alike. Lord, show us our need for you this morning. Remind us, if we're in Christ, remind us of your grace to us, Lord. And if we're not in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would draw many to yourself. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark 14, beginning in verse 26, it says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So in our text last week, um, we see Jesus having a Passover meal with his disciples, and after stooping down and washing their feet in humble servitude, he then predicts that one of the twelve, which we know is Judas, one of the twelve will betray him. We know from the other gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, that by the time the Passover meal has ended, Judas has probably already left to go and meet the chief priests and those other men that would arrest Jesus. So as the Passover feast is winding down, the, the disciples of Jesus, they sing a hymn of benediction, and then they go out towards the Mount of Olives, and while they're on their way, Jesus rocks the disciples again. 
He says, not only will one of the twelve betray me, not only will one of you betray me, but actually, you are all going to fall away. Now, not only is one of the closest friends of Jesus going to turn on Jesus, Jesus is predicting that they're all going to turn on him, and they're all going to abandon him. Jesus is quoting a prophecy from Zechariah 13 in the Old Testament. Zechariah 13.7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So here's Jesus painting this picture of disciples running away, fleeing their shepherd like sheep. I don't know if you've ever spent any time with, with sheep. Uh, I don't know if there's any, any shepherds in here. I have spent a little time with sheep. My cousins used to do 4-H in junior high and high school, and so they'd raise these sheep, so we'd go out with them and, and help feed them sometimes. And one time I had this really unfortunate job. My parents let me skip school, maybe so I would never skip school again. Uh, they let me skip school when I was 15, and I went to this guy's farm, and for several hours in the hot sun of southeastern New Mexico, I helped this farmer castrate and tag all his new lambs, and it went on all day long, and it was awful. Sheep are the dumbest animal, the dumbest. Their defense mechanism is, hey, let's run away from the safety of the flock. Let's run away from our shepherd, and they are not breaking any speed records. Um, man, they're just dumb, man. Oftentimes, instead of staying with in safety, they're going to wander right into danger. I think that's fitting. I think that's fitting that God often refers to his followers as sheep because we're so prone to wander. We are so prone to drift. We are so prone to leave the safe confines of the flock. And yet, thankfully, Jesus is our good shepherd who goes after the one and leaves the 99. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And so in this text of Zechariah, um, there's this command given to strike the shepherd. And based on the context of this passage, it's actually God that is commanding the striking to be done. God, according to the scriptures, lays the punishment, the iniquity, the sin and shame on Jesus in order to make a way for the pardon and cleansing of sin, in order for you and I to have a way to be restored and reconciled back to God, God the Father, according to His good and perfect will, strikes God the Son, and then the sheep scatter. But all is not lost. All is not hopeless. Jesus tells them that He will, in fact, be raised. He's again calling their attentions back to the fact that his death is not the end, but that he will be raised up from the dead. And he will meet them back at their headquarters in Galilee. He says, I will meet you back to where I first called you all to follow me. It's in Galilee that Jesus will return to them, that Jesus will recommission them, that Jesus will go to restore them, where Jesus will go and bestow grace upon them and then send them into his world as disciples and as the first missionaries to the new covenant instituted by the blood and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, in his mercy, is revealing to them that even though they are all going to fall away, even though they are all going to abandon Jesus, Jesus loves them all the same. 
And he would regather the sheep together once again. That is coming. After they've reflected on Jesus' words, after they've reflected on Jesus' prediction, after they've reflected on their subsequent cowardice, Jesus is going to bring them all together back into the fold. And look at our buddy Peter. Verse 29, Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. I kind of just see them like standing in a circle as Jesus is talking, and Peter's like, even though they're all going to leave you, Jesus, not this guy. And oh, I wish so much that that would be true. I wish we would find in Peter the type of commitment that we so badly want for ourselves, right? That we would have Peter as an example. And yet... This statement that Peter is making is made out of arrogance. Peter is actually committing a sin. He's not only not believing in Jesus' prediction, but also from the mouth of Jesus, we know that there has never come a lie ever before. So Peter is not only not believing Jesus, he is also calling Jesus a liar by his statement. Man, Peter doesn't know himself. Peter has an inflated view of himself. And as Proverbs 16 tells us, pride comes before destruction. Man, Jesus looks at Peter, and I, I imagine there's not disappointment in his face. There's not disappointment in his tone. There's not frustration with Peter, but just love and compassion. And he says these words to him, verse 30. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And can't you see it? Jesus, tender and soft looking at Peter. Hey, buddy, I'm going to be honest. You're going to deny me, not once, but three times. Jesus, who is the great prophet, looks at Peter, who doesn't know his own heart, and Jesus reveals it to him. And Jesus, as the great prophet, also shows us that these, are, these events are happening, and these events are happening rather quickly. The purpose of this rooster crowing, it, it, it has two purposes. First, it shows us how empty Peter's promise was. In just a few hours, Peter is going to publicly disown Jesus three times. And the other purpose it shows is that there's grace and mercy to Peter. When the rooster crows, Peter's mind's going to be transported back to this conversation he's having with Jesus. And this is meant to bring Peter back to faith in Christ and repentance from his sin. Because Peter will realize in this moment that Jesus is in fact who he says he is. God in flesh who came to die for Peter's unfaithfulness. And yet with Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial... Peter doubles down. Verse 31. But he, being Peter, said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Not only did Peter double down, but all the disciples did so as well. This is like Peter's William Wallace moment. If you've seen that movie Braveheart, or if you were at the park on Thursday where Matt was giving us a rally cry. Um, William Wallace comes in, he rallies the troops, and then they follow him into battle. Peter, the same, comes in, he rallies the troops, and they're willing to follow Peter into battle until that battle actually arrives. So here's some things I want us to consider before we get to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
One commentator said that this exchange is applicable to all people, Christians and non-Christians alike, in, in these ways. Number one, as sinners, we don't know our inner selves. Man, I am guilty of this a lot, and I know that I am not alone here. Uh, but we will often look at something someone else does and think, man, I would never do that. But when you make claims like that, you're communicating you have a low view of sin. You're communicating you have a low view of just how wicked your own heart is. Man, think of Peter and the disciples in this moment. There is a huge contrast in what they promised and then what they actually did. And guess what? We're the exact same way. And what's worse for us, not knowing how wicked our hearts are, not really knowing our inner selves, and not knowing how broken and sinful we really are, what's worse is that we can do nothing about it. Apart from God acting on our behalf, there is nothing we can do to fix ourselves. We are more sinful than we all even realize. And if you believe what Scripture says about us, we actually kind of like it that way. And in spite of this, God was pleased to come and dwell among us and take our punishment upon himself. So therefore, as Christians, we can now have confidence to approach God in boldness when we sin, and we can seek forgiveness in Christ, because in Christ, we have been fully accepted, we have been fully loved, we are fully known, and we can take comfort from the Lord for the fact that on our behalf and for God's glory, God the Father laid on God the Son the iniquity of us all. So that what Scripture says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So if you're an unbeliever in here, if, you don't, if you're not buying this, maybe you're just searching for something. If you're not a Christian, I tell you, you don't have to persist in your unbelief. The same grace and mercy has been offered to you through the same means of faith and repentance in Jesus. This Jesus who willingly went to the cross for you. We're just like Peter. We cannot stand on our own. No matter how strong you are, no matter how much willpower you think you have, or how pure or noble you think your motives are, you cannot do it alone. You cannot work enough. You cannot be good enough. You are only accepted by the grace of Jesus to you. And in our text today, Jesus has already extended grace to his disciples by telling them, even before you are scattered, that Jesus, through the means of his mercy, by his resurrection, would regather them. Forgiveness is available to them just like it is to you. So with this prediction that Jesus makes and this braggadociousness of the disciples, we enter the Garden of Gethsemane. This garden was located on the side of the Mount of Olives. So now, if you'll indulge me for a second, I must allow my pastoral stand-up routine, stand-up comedic routine, and my dad joke life to peacefully coexist here. This is the very first Olive Garden. Da-da-cha! Thank you. All right. Thank you, treasure. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they go into this place. 
And Jesus is there to pray with his disciples. And look at what's taking place. Verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So Jesus and his disciples, they enter Gethsemane and he positions eight of them at one place. And he tells them, wait here. I'm going to go a little further and pray. And he takes Peter, James, and John, his closest friends, out of that group of 12. He takes them with him, and they go on a little further in order to pray. He takes them with him for some fellowship and some joint intercession. And yet, as we see him continue on in this garden, the text says he begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is the third time in Mark that, that we see uh, Jesus praying alone. This is the third time, and it will be the last time. And each time is significant. But this time it'll be the most significant. As they are walking along, we see this noticeable shift in Jesus's demeanor. He tells his friends that he's sorrowful. He's feeling the pains of his impending humiliation. He's feeling the pains of of his death that is coming for him. Jesus, as, as God... Jesus in his divine nature knows what's coming. He knows what the next few hours are going to hold for him. And Jesus is a man. He's feeling the weight of it all. He knows that it's about to get really difficult. Jesus knows that his closest friends are going to abandon him, that they're going to leave him. Jesus feels this mounting isolation. Many have left him already. His disciples are about to forsake him. And on the cross, we're going to hear him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The tidal wave of our sin is beginning to land on Jesus here in this garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is feeling it all. Man, Jesus came to earth knowing he would become a curse bearer. Jesus bears the curse of our sin, which is death. The curse of sin is punishment by death, and Jesus becomes that curse bearer for us by becoming the curse for us. And now more than ever, he's feeling the pain. Feeling the pains and the way of becoming a curse for those who would trust in him for eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, a wage is what you get paid for the work you do. And so the punishment that you and I have earned, the wage that you and I have earned, is death. And here's Jesus, bearing it on the cross. And this moment in the garden is the beginning of the turmoil that will last for several more hours and into the coming day. Some older translations of the Bible say that Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow. He knew that he was giving his life up as a ransom for many. He knew that the sinless one was going to be made sin, and he would be the bearer of God's wrath against sin and against death. Man, Jesus is at death's door. But it's not just the physical death. More importantly, it's an eternal death for the sake of, in the place of, 
his people. And he does this to make atonement. He does this to make a payment for the sins of his people. And Jesus bears this all, and he bore it all alone. As they're going, Jesus asked Peter and James and John to stand watch. Verse 35, And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The agony, man, it's getting worse. And what does Jesus do when his agony is intense? He prays. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus prays. He is praying for God to spare him, that God would allow this to be removed from him. Church, I just want to tell you some stuff. It's okay. Following the example of Jesus, it is okay to pray, to ask God to remove you from pain and suffering and sorrow. That's okay. And yet, I would also tell you, it's more important to be in the middle of the will of God. Jesus says, Abba, Father. Abba being a tender plea from a child to their daddy. It's like the Aramaic equivalent of the word daddy, Abba. Please spare me. And yet he continues, Jesus continues in this prayer, but not what I will, but your will be done in and through me, God. Jesus prays that this divinely ordained moment of his death would pass by him. That if it were possible, that if it were possible for another way for salvation to be secured on behalf of creation, that God would orchestrate it. And yet Jesus is knowing that this predestined event was set in motion before creation. And Jesus submitted himself to the wisdom and knowledge of God the all-knowing, all-powerful creator and sustainer of the world. Jesus is submitting himself entirely to the will of the Father. And Jesus then returns to his watchful disciples. Verse 37. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> Jesus returns and finds them snoozing. And he looks at Peter, and he calls him Simon. Jesus' rebuke to these guys, is, it's a plural, so Jesus is meaning for it to be for all three of the men. But specifically, he addresses Peter. And he does so by calling him by his old name. He says, Simon, didn't you just pledge your unyielding unwavering, loyal to me like 12 minutes ago, and yet you couldn't stay awake for just a little bit like I asked you to? He tells them to watch and pray. This is different from the first time he told them to watch. The first one is more of a physical, like, hey, keep an eye out here. I'm going to go pray for a minute. This, this time it's more spiritual. Stay awake spiritually. Be alert spiritually so you won't be tempted to fall away from me. 
And we know from the coming passages that none of the disciples obeyed Jesus' command here and also come to the temptation and fell away from Jesus. Jesus returns to his place in the garden, verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Man, Jesus is praying. I think it's important uh, to make a distinction here. Jesus is praying not to be spared from the physical death of the cross. That, while being significant, pales in comparison to the spiritual death that Jesus will experience on the cross. The anguish of the cross, the physical anguish of the cross, is not what concerned Jesus. It was the separation from God the Father that troubled him. Tim Keller, in his book, The King's Cross, tells us that Jesus is praying as much as he can before all of this really begins to unfold. He says this, In Gethsemane, he turns to the Father, and all he can see before him is wrath. All he can see before him is the abyss, is the chasm, is the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that. And as Jesus fights for the souls of men, his closest friends are sleeping. And when confronted, they don't have a reason for it. Verse 41, And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus is agonized over his death, and he's done so all alone, and he gets up, and he's resolved in himself to go. Submitting to the will of the Father, he is on his way. It's enough. It's time. The betrayer is here. At the beginning of the Bible, all the way back in Genesis, we see Adam, the first man, in a garden, submitting not to the will of God, but submitting to his own will, and creation unravels in a garden. Jesus, the true and better Adam, coming to save the hellbound sinner, in another garden, submits not to his own will, but to the will of the Father. And in this willful submission to God, creation is beginning to be restored. Jesus gets up. He's ready to meet his betrayer. And we'll unpack that a little next week. But what we see in verse 41 is Jesus now has peace. There's peace now. The struggle in Gethsemane is now over, and Jesus is now realizing and sensing that through his death, there will be victory. So here's what I, where I want to land this morning. Um, Gethsemane was, was hell for Jesus, like literal hell for Jesus. Daniel Aiken says it like this, Gethsemane is hell for Jesus, but I am thankful he went through it. For without Gethsemane, there is no cross. Without the cross, there is no empty tomb. Without, no, without that, without the resurrection, uh, if there is no resurrection, there is only hell for us. This passage is pointing us to the fact that the good, shre- the good shepherd is being struck for his sheep. 
Jesus goes to the cross to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus goes to the cross in love for those who would abandon him in his moment of need. And yet through his prayers and through communion with God, he has been encouraged, he's been strengthened to finish the work that he came to do, to redeem sinners and to reconcile his creation back to God. Even though his disciples would fail him, even though disciples throughout the centuries have failed him, even though we who are believers in him still persist in struggle and still persist in sin, Jesus still went to the cross to endure on our behalf. Even though we fail him, his love will never fail us. Jesus endures on behalf of sinners, and that includes me, and that includes you. If you're, if you're a believer, you've been invited into a family. You've been invited into a family to love Jesus and to submit to his will for our lives, to follow him in love and devotion. Jesus is calling you this morning to lay down your sin, to turn to him in faith. Christian, you've been granted access. You've been granted access to the Father through the Holy Spirit by the blood of Jesus. You don't have to cower. You don't have to hide. You don't have to run because Jesus already knows your sin. And yet, he still willingly and lovingly died for you. And Christian, because of this truth, this should motivate you to go and live for Christ and live missionally in a world that doesn't know him. You have, in fact, been raised up with Christ from death to life, and therefore you are now sent out by Christ through his Holy Spirit to show his love to the world who desperately is in need of a Savior. Man, and if you're not a believer in here, you can experience forgiveness. You can have forgiveness. You are not too far gone. You are not beyond forgiving. And the opposite is true as well. You can't save yourself. You need the work of Jesus on your behalf. You cannot earn God's grace by your good works. You cannot earn God's grace by your good works. Coming to church does not save you. Praying does not save you. Reading the Bible does not save you. Not cussing, not getting drunk, not looking at porn, whatever you want to insert in there. None of that will save you. It is only through God's grace to you that you can be saved. And so you need to ask the Lord to forgive you. And you need to ask the Lord to save you. And you need to commit your life to following Jesus. It is not too late. You are not too far gone. But you have to repent. You have to believe in him by faith that it is possible for you to be saved because of what he did for you on the cross and through his resurrection. Repent and believe in him in faith this morning. Let's pray.